I've decided for this particular video to sort of skip my usual, here's the behind-the-scenes making of thing, uh, mostly because I'd basically be repeating myself at this point. No, seriously, it's kind of funny how all of these films have been, we wanted to do something in the 90s, stuff happened for about a decade, and then things kind of lined up for us to make Iron Man, Iron Man was a success, and now we can actually make the film. Captain America was almost worse than that because they did a fairly large amount of pre-development work as early as 2006. Uh, mostly sketches, art designs, that kind of a thing. Until they finally got to the point where like, yeah, we're actually going to put the movie out. And then Captain America was last in the lineup. By all accounts, that was deliberate. In fact, it was pushed back more than once in order to be at this point, to be the direct lead-in into The Avengers. In fact, in the original theatrical, and indeed in the version I just watched on Amazon, they... The, the, there's still a trailer for Avengers in the, in the post-credits sequence, rather than just the usual stuff. And a scene from Avengers. So, yeah, it was, this was, this was the build-up. We knew we were going at this point. I also want to give simultaneous praise and eyebrow raising to Lola. Lola, for those of you not aware, is the company that did the special effects work on Rogers himself, making him look skinny and scrawny for the first about 43 or so minutes of the film. Not an insignificant period of time, as it happens. Now, uh, I, I'm not going to give you all the details on this. I just find it fascinating. Basically what they did is they did each scene, which had, you know, mini Rogers in it, four times. Uh, once with just Evans there, and they were directed to look at different marks rather than their eyes, because you're supposed to be here. Then they did one with just the other actor. Then they did one with just Evans against a green screen. And then they did a fourth one, which was with a basically a physical stunt double, just in case they needed to use alternate methods of accomplishing the shrinking, you know, CGI sculpting thing that they were doing. It was a lot of effort, and it does look good, as long as you don't really pay too much attention to it. Maybe this is just, you know, modern tech and the fact that I've got a nice monitor to watch this in full def, but staring, you know, if you actually just look at Mini Rogers for a bit, the seams do start to show. But I think they did a good job nevertheless. I almost wonder if it was necessary. I mean, obviously, the only alternative would to be to do a lot of filming before Evans did his workout and then pause for like six months and then do the rest of the filming. And that would have caused significant issues and would be a nightmare from a production standpoint. So, uh, I don't know. I don't know. Anyways, <clears throat> I do want to mention uh, one other thing really quick. Two other things, actually. First of all, this and Iron Man 1 usually occupy, occupy my top slot for the Phase 1 stuff. The Pre-Avengers. Avengers is my favorite. I'm, I'm actually really looking forward to and simultaneously very nervous about talking about Avengers. I've talked about Avengers for years. I have done character analyses for Avengers just with my friends and, and with people in person, so it's going to be interesting. But anyways, part of the biggest reason why I like this one, and I know I've said this before, is I like how they spend as much time on Rogers as they do on Captain America. Like I said, about 43 minutes before the serum stuff really starts to take effect. I like that. It really helps to establish the man. Which brings me to something else interesting. I don't know how deliberate this was, but the lineup of Phase 1 is basically perfect for this kind of a, an experiment. Because let's be clear, the whole MCU thing at this point in time was still an experiment. People still weren't sure if this was really going to work out, or if this is the right move, or if it was going to be creatively successful, or if it was going to be financially successful. So everyone was just kind of like, uh, But what we have here is each member, each predominant member of the Avengers not counting Hawkeye and Widow. I'll talk more about them next week, don't worry. But each of the people who've had a film to themselves specialize or are from a different branch of comic book fandom, basically. We've got the monster, that's Incredible Hulk. We've got the machine, you know, tech-savvy, robots, sci-fi stuff, that's Stark. We've got the magic, that's Thor. And we've got the man, and that's Captain America. And across those four, the four M's, we basically do have, like, at least a representative of each of the general types of comic book stories or, or heroes or whatever that we have. Now, I know there's exceptions. I'm not saying that there aren't. But this is as broad of a sweep as you can get with the limited time and scope of a, and, and of a budget of a movie. And then, of course, bringing them all together for Avengers, 
we will see, well, we'll see how that works next week. I also have to say really quick, um, first of all, the cold open was nice. I, I I intended that pun, I'll admit that. <laughs> I didn't intend it when I sketched it down, but I was like, yeah, I'll keep it in because it is amusing. Um, I do wonder, and I'm curious what you guys think, if this the only reason that Cat managed to survive being frozen was because of the serum. We do know for a fact that later on Bucky survives because of what was done to him, and he didn't even have the serum. He just had the beginnings of exper- excuse me, experiments, so it's entirely feasible that Cap was surviving because of that serum. Shrug. And then we go to the, uh, the old stuff. Now... For those of you not aware, uh, several of the people who worked on Rocketeer, including the director, were involved in this film, and there was a lot of people uh, from over... Uh, well, actually, a lot of people who also worked on the Indiana Jones series also came to work on this film. And I think it shows. The quality of the sets, the attention to detail for the period piece is actually really good. There are a few continuity gaps here and there, of course, that you know stuff that shouldn't exist in this period of time, but for the most part, they really did their homework. I'll discuss that a little bit more later because there's a couple things which are neat about that. But the really relevant part is I really like the, the majority of the film, which is set in the 1940s. Now, they have a filter over things, and it's more obvious if you look at the old scenes directly paralleled with the scenes in the present day, but I don't mind the filter. It adds and I have no other way to put this, a World War II-y feel to the film, since the filter itself was developed based on the way cameras worked back in that day and era, so I suppose that makes sense. So there's this town. This is actually the town that was referenced in Thor. I mentioned that. I looked up how to pronounce that. Apparently it's, uh, oh, geez, uh, Tosber is what I am told how to pronounce it. It is spelled Tonsberg. So I'm hoping I'm getting at least part of that correct here. It's the town in Norway where they actually find the Tesseract, the cube. God, those poor people. I feel so bad for them. There's actually a lot of weird visual storytelling in that section. God, attack. Ah, where, for example, you know, Schmidt is coming in, and they're like, quick, quick, get, get the sarcophagus open before he gets... Hi, hi. Early on, we see that there's that he's a bad boss, and that there's some friction between him and the Nazi regime. We also see that three men were having trouble moving that lid, and Schmidt does it by himself almost effortlessly. So, early hint of the serum there. And, of course, when he shoots the guy, a little bit of blood splatters specifically on the skull of the Hydra thing. You know, da-da-da-da-da-da, right? So that's all obvious. Good stuff, good stuff. What I want to know, and I'm curious what you guys think of this, did... Schmidt's character, did Schmidt believe in the supernatural before the serum? Or was that what really made it come together for him? Like, they they never really outline this in the movie. Not really. They mention how, oh yes, he was looking for you know the, the occult as a way to, to band the people together as a propaganda piece. But me, I believed it was real. Well, when did you believe it was real? Remember, this Schmidt is apparently a genius scientist who is head of the research division and has been for many, many years. So... At what point did he decide to start believing in... Well, I hate to call it the supernatural, because as he himself points it out, it's merely another form of science. But you get my point. When does he start to believe in the fantastical? That's a better way to put it. It's my own terminology. Um, I personally like to think that it was something that was in the back of his mind until he took the serum, until he became the Red Skull. And from that point on, that's when he started thinking, oh, yes, this is true, I must search it down. And then, of course, he started finding hints of it and correlating reports, and then it's like, oh, my God, it's actually real, you know. And then he goes and he finds the Tesseract. So thanks for that, Odin. Appreciate you leaving this here for us. Um, quick aside, it's worth noting that back when these movies were first being built, it was believed by several of the creators, not necessarily Kevin Feige himself, but several of the creators of the specific films believed that Odin was basically the one in charge of everything. He was, you know, the guy running the universe. Now, obviously, that has since been undone, and he is no longer uh, of such a position of power or prominence in the overall mythos of the setting. It's also interesting because in more modern stuff, it seems to be thought that Thanos, or Thanos, whichever you prefer, is the, I can never remember how they pronounce it, forgive me, is actually the one that has been kind of maneuvering things into this position for a while here. 
We'll see, I suppose. It'll be interesting if they even bring this up during Infinity War, which by now, in, in your perspective, is coming out next week. God, it's only a week away. Isn't that a weird thought? One week and ten years, and we'll finally see Infinity War. I want to talk really quick about Hugo Weaving. Now, I like Hugo Weaving a lot, actually. I like him in most roles he is in. I don't like him in this role at all. I actively dislike his portrayal. It's really a shame, because thus far we have had Obadiah Stane, brilliant, uh, Justin Hammer, enjoyable, if kind of wonky, um, uh, Venko, or Vanko, you know, very intimidating, very competent. We've had Loki, brilliant. And we've had Johann Schmidt, who's there. He is the, in my opinion, he is the weakest by far of the villains we've seen to date. And of everything that's been done in Phase 1, I could just forget about him, and I don't think there would be anything significantly lost to the work. In fact, I will be talking about Zola later on, because I find him to be a far more intriguing type of villain, but we'll get to that when we get there. Now, Weaving himself has spoken negatively about this film and his performance in it, and how he just didn't feel the character, and he was given a piece of cardboard to act, and blah blah blah. I don't know how much of this is true or isn't true. I would like to know your guys' thoughts on his portrayal of the Red Skull, because... Again, to me, it just came off as very flat. I'm not calling him a bad actor, but there was no anything behind most of his performance. He was just, I am the cold villain. And that was like it. it was, it's, it's, as I like to call a one-dimensional character. I am a cold villain. Here we go. I am still cold. I am being cold to you. I shall shoot you because you failed me. I am cold to you. He only gets upset towards the end of the film, and even then... Well, we'll get there when we get there. So, <laughs> we're going to see a lot of establishment of Steve Rogers' character throughout the first 40 minutes of the film. A lot, actually. And I do like that, as I mentioned earlier. But what's really fascinating to me is that Steve Rogers... How do I put this? He's not pragmatic. Now, I say that very specifically because I've heard some people say that he's very stupid, which I find to be deliberately unkind and not really getting in the nuance of the situation. Rogers isn't stupid so much as it's not his inclination to... How do I put this? <laughs> to look at a problem, think about it, analyze it, ponder it, and then deal with it. Now, I stress the way I'm saying that because... He is very good at looking at a situation and thinking around it. This is something that will be part of his character arc several times, that he will find an alternate path to get to where he wants. He doesn't have the strength. And, blah, blah, blah. and again, I'll get all that later. But I mention that because... Because he tries to falsify his own records to get himself into the army, specifically the army, in the World War II invasion, by this point, it's 1943, I believe. I, I think they say, forgive me. But the boot campaign's already happening, so we know we're well into that. Italy has you know, probably already clunked at this point. This is probably the period when the lines were dissolving so fast that they were having trouble catching up. Um, so obviously he wants to be part of the army. He wants to go over to the European front. He wants to fight. He wants to help people. He wants to do something in order to contribute. Now, that's a major part of his character, and we see how he's willing to go to exceptional lengths to do this, but by most accounts, what he's doing is not smart in the sense of sit back, think about it, maybe I do this. Because that's just not his character. That's Stark's character. And I do like that. The contrast between Stark and Rogers is actually awesome. We'll see more of that in the next film, and in basically every other film the two are together in. Because... While the two actually have a great chemistry and a great, uh, I, I guess I want to call it, uh, degree of teamwork going between them, what I love is the way in which they are almost completely opposite in terms of their overall mentality. Now, please forgive me. Uh, I actually need to check something here really quick. Sorry about that. <laughs> that was my bank. Usually I like to ignore everything when I'm doing these recordings, but kind of figured I had to take that one. Okay, so, 
let's let's, let's move on. I, I think I've said enough about uh, the difference in the two guys and the mentality, blah, blah, blah. I want to talk about how much the jackass during the pre-cartoon war reel guy is a jackass. So, first of all, he's a jackass. Second of all, he... Um, he keeps telling him, just get on with the movie. I don't know if he knows how film reels work in the 1940s, but that's not a physical possibility. He's going to have to sit there and wait for it to finish. I mean, they even if they wanted to, they wouldn't really do that. Um, second of all, he's in a full room with lots of other people, including people who are openly weeping at the reality of the war. Um... I'm amazed that Rogers was the only one who spoke up about that. In fact, i got to be blunt, given the way that the mentality was, at least from what we understand at the time, it wouldn't surprise me if that guy got rather beat up the moment he left there, because Jesus, dude. But of course, no, Rogers is the only one who speaks up, and then he goes to beat Rogers up. I mean, that's just logical, right? you got to beat a man up for daring to say, hey, would you just take it easy? Now, I get the point. The point is this man is a bully. Now, I want to stress something really quick. The film and I actually both use the same general presentation of the terminology of the word bully. Because I don't use that term lightly. And I don't mean like just some person who shoves you around. I mean a bully, which is pretty far down on the rung for human decency. And so does the film. Just like this guy. Again, this guy is a horrible human being. Let's just go down the laundry list here for a second here. First of all, he's loud, obnoxious, and actively rude during something that is not, you know, is a very somber moment and is actively emotionally impacting other people. Second of all, when called out on his terrible behavior in a non-violent or aggressive way, I feel like pointing out, he decides that the best thing is to beat up that person and just continue beating him up basically for fun. Third, when an actual U.S. military personnel shows up, that'd be Bucky, and is like, hey, why don't you pick on someone your own size, he takes a swing at him too. I mean, this guy could literally land in jail for a while for taking a swing at a U.S. military officer in wartime. So yeah, bully. Also, to see also, idiot. So then we see Bucky. Bucky's cool. I like Bucky. I actually really like this version of Bucky, if you will. The Bucky I usually remember from the comics is the blundering moron idiot who constantly had to be saved by Rogers and was a load, basically, for the entire uh, part of the ground. Now, I know he grew out of that. I'm aware. I'm aware that they did a lot more with his character after all, but that's the one I tend to think of automatically. So seeing Bucky already starting as the competent one, the stronger one, the more self-assured one, I kind of like that presentation. It also adds a little bit of extra nuance to Rogers' character, because Bucky obviously does have a lot of... Um, Loyalty and friendship with Rogers. Yeah, he's weak and pathetic, but so what? And that's kind of important because it also helps to serve as a contrast to Mr. Random uh, Hooligan guy who just got beat up. In other words, Bucky is made to be a more positive character in his contrast to how other people interact with Rogers. And you'll notice the whole film does that. How everyone interacts with Rogers, the central character of the film, Captain America, really says a lot about their characters. Bucky is protective and friendly and wants to take care of him and help him out. Encourages him, you know. Um, we see how Carter interacts with him later. How she, while she is amused by him, is nevertheless warmed over by his attitude and his mentality and how honest and open he is. We see how Colonel Phillips just kind of shakes his head at him, but only really starts to warm up to him once he starts getting results, because results is all that really matters to him, and so forth and so on. There, there's multiple examples here. I'm not going to cover all of them. Um, so then we get to the Stark Expo. <sighs> Seeing these films back-to-back -back like this makes this kind of feel weird, because I feel like I just saw a Stark Expo with a bunch of robots and cyber suits, and now we're seeing another one with a little older mentality about... 70 years or so older, give or take. I do like that, though. I like the contrast. I like that old Howard Stark was still doing that, and I like the guy they brought in to play Howard Stark. Good stuff, good stuff. I also have to comment just really quick on the Human Torch thing, which was a nice little uh, thing in the background. They do, they do several tiny little 
things like this in these films in general. And I only point out the few that really caught me. I liked the Human Torch one because, I mean, obviously Chris Evans played, <laughs> you know, back in Fantastic Four, which is a terrible movie. But anyways, anyways. <clears throat> so we have the expo. Um, one of the two women who has an extremely bit part as being the dates for Bucky and Rogers is Clara Oswald. And I am now firmly convinced that Doctor Who and the MCU are now actually in the same universe. I mean, it's not even that out of bounds. They could do that. It'd be easy. If you don't get my point, the same actress who plays Clara over in Doctor Who uh, also was the same thing. And I can't look at that woman's face and not see Clara at this point in time. Or Clara. Whatever. <clears throat> So we see Howard. He is, of course, still a ladies' man, just like his son. And he is still brilliant and very good at what he does. And we kind of show this very quickly and efficiently. Again, very efficient directing. Hi, kiss, wipe, talk to the audience, lots of charisma. And hey, by the way, here's a freaking hover car. Doesn't quite work yet. But a car that can hover at all in that day and age is damned impressive. As he said back in Iron Man 2, Stark was mostly limited by the technology of his time, and he was smart enough to know that. At some point in time, someone will be able to really make the things that I know can be made. So, they go to the side, and of course we have to have the joke about how tiny and weak and pathetic Rogers is. And then Erskine, God, I hope I'm pronouncing that correctly, there, several people pronounce it differently in the film. Uh, Professor Erskine happens to be at the Stark Expo. That's a little bit coincidental, but I'm willing to forgive it because it kind of leads nicely into the idea that he was specifically at the Expo in order to look for candidates for his serum. Remember, he's been looking for a while. They hint at this a few times in the film. And so he's pro it, I get the impression, this is pure headcanon, I get the impression that he was frustrated with all these others, and he's like, Ugh, and he's just, I'm going to go for a bit, and he starts wandering out into the actual expo, like, fine, friggin' whatever. And, he ha and he's just frustrated and irritable, and then he happens into, again, coincidence, happens into and overhears the conversation between Bucky and Rogers. Uh, Barnes, Barnes. I'm going to start trying to call him Barnes. It feels it, almost disrespectful to call him Bucky because I do like his character. So, you know, Barnes and Rogers are having that conversation and he's like, huh. Now, what I love, and I really love this, is he gets him to the side. And there's this big sign. It's a, it's a crime to lie on your thing, blah, blah, blah. Erskine comes in and he's like, hey, do you want to kill Nazis? I like that. I like that that's basically his first question. Do you want to kill Nazis? And he kind of dances around the question a bit. We get a little exposition on the characters. You know, I'm from this other place. Also Germany before that. Is that a problem? And I like how Roger smoothly and easily says, no. Why would it be? <laughs> I mean, yeah, there was a, some significant anti-German and anti-Japanese bias in the States in that period of time. It's actually a horrible and frankly disgusting part of our history that we do have to acknowledge. But someone like Rogers wouldn't be like that. There's a difference, after all, between a German and a Nazi, <laughs> which I'll get to again in a minute. So, he didn't ask my question. Do you want to kill Nazis? And Rogers says, no. I don't want to kill anyone. I just don't like bullies here or anywhere else, wherever they're from. I like that a lot. Because... <sighs> Because now's as good a time as any to really talk about Captain Rogers. And I'm going to call him that. The amalgam of both. Steve Rogers and Captain America. Captain Rogers is very close to being my favorite character in the MCU. Now anybody who knows me probably is like, oh, of course you like the good guy lore. And I do. And for that reason. But I think I also like him because it's really, really hard to hit that perfect sweet spot of almost innocent and yet still partially wise. That, that, that very specific flavor of a character who is likable, who is positive, who is basically a good person. You know, is, is someone who would be counted in the good guys rather than the bad guys category, right? And who nevertheless isn't flat. Unlike Schmidt, 
Rogers is not a one-dimensional character. We see quite a few aspects of his character throughout the course of this film. Again, that's one of the things I like about this. So he's not one-dimensional, but he's not like... Like, Stark is a good person at his heart. I think that's well-proven, even within the films we've seen him in already, and that will continue to be well-proven in the future. But Stark is also not a good guy. You follow me? He has ego, he has problems, he has eccentricities, he has post-traumatic stress, which will last up to and including uh, the Civil War film. I mean, it takes forever for him to get over all this crap, assuming he even does, which arguably he doesn't, we'll see. You know, there's this whole series of just stuff that Stark goes through. And the same thing with Thor, who was a prat before he started to learn some humility, started to really examine himself. But Rogers, he's just a kid from Brooklyn. And it's hard for me to properly explain why that's a good thing. It's, it is, as ever, a nuanced thing. You can't just write down a bullet point and say, good person, and then make that a character. It usually doesn't work that way. You have to have more. You have to have more charisma. You have to have more relatability. You have to have more humanity. You have to have more depth to you. It is possible to be a good person and still be written well. I know this because I've read the Superman comics that are actually good. <laughs> you know? They're out there. There's good Superman stuff. And there's good Rogers stuff, too. But I also think that there's two really important reasons why Rogers is kind of awesome in all of this. In, in, in addition to his teamworking things, which I'll talk about later. Number one, of the heroes we've seen so far, he is the only one who most closely approaches the ideal of a hero. You know, the kind of a person who is willing to jump on a grenade to save others, even though that might not necessarily be the smartest decision. And in fact, in Avengers, there's a line about that where Stark says, I'd rather just disable the bomb so that, you know, I disable the mine rather than put myself on it and let the other people crawl over me, you know? Rogers is the person who will, without hesitation, jump on that grenade and say, nope, I got this. Because that's his mentality. It is very self-sacrificing, which is itself a flaw, actually. But that self-sacrificing also lends some... You want to cheer for them. I know that's not a single sentence, but, or a single uh, word, but you know, the, it adds some you want to cheer for them to the character, in my opinion. And the second reason, and I already mentioned this, is because he's the man. It's kind of hard to relate to Tony Stark. I imagine most of us don't have that kind of wealth and riches and power, and if you do, why the hell are you watching me? And I hope most of you haven't been to the kind of depths that he has been to. It's pretty hard to relate to Thor, but it's very easy to relate to Captain Rogers, especially before the serum. I know I've been that weak. So, we have a quick aside where we start to see, there's a quick meanwhile elsewhere with Schmidt and Zola. And they, they successfully get the Tesseract working. I'll comment on this again in a minute where it's more relevant, but I also want to comment right now how amusing it is that the main benefit of the Tesseract is that it is a power source. I love that. This may sound like a weird thing, but when designing science fiction, really, you know, well thought out, in-depth world building for a science fiction setting, or even magical setting, or a fantasy setting, power source is more important than most people tend to think. And I really love a setting that really goes out of its way to emphasize that having that kind of power source, having the ability to draw on that kind of energy is an innumerable advantage. It's the kind of thing that's hard to even quantify how advantageous that is. And to further make my point, there are several designs and weapons and concepts that were designed by Nazi Germany back in, in the 40s and 30s even that they couldn't make work because they didn't have the power to actually power these things. It was impossible. They didn't have a Tesseract, after all. So those designs were scrapped, and almost every single one of the major Hydra weapons and designs in this film are actually based on those original Nazi designs, which I find fascinating. And again, very logical, very sense-making, so I love that. Um... 
So the first scene we see with Agent Carter is a good scene because the very first thing she does is she establishes that she is very competent and she's not willing to put up with any crap. Now, this is the 1940s, so a woman who is British giving orders to, you know, American males probably is going to be the kind of thing where she would be mocked or derided. Until she slugs him in the face, of course, because she is better than him and would probably destroy him in a one-on-one -on -one fight. I've always loved that element of her character, the competency. And once again, we see how she kind of serves as a nice counterbalance to, to uh, Captain Rogers. He, of course, will have the serum and his idealism, his willingness to drop on, jump on the grenade. She has knowledge, access, skills, connections. She forms another nice other half of the puzzle and basically is the kind of person who I like to imagine, although I don't think they ever said this. I never got to watch Agent Carter the show, so I never actually see if they cover this. But I like to think that she was the one planning all those raids, going after all those Hydra bases during the montage later. Just my mentality on that. So, then we see Tommy Lee Jones. Always good to see Tommy Lee Jones. I am a big fan of his as an actor. He manages to hit a wonderfully human slice between I'm a hard-ass leader, but I also do care. And he does this continuously throughout almost every scene he's in. Um, so, I want to talk about Darth Vader now. Hear me out. I swear this is connected. Now, this is pure theoretical, but I've always been of the belief that Darth Vader was overall better, more powerful, is how I like to think of that, than Anakin Skywalker. I think Anakin Skywalker was stronger, but I think Vader was more powerful. Now, the reason I believe this is because Vader had a limited connection to the Force through the pain and through the, 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 the machines that literally kept him alive. So Anakin was able to coast by on just raw strength. I am so strong, I can just do things. Vader had to learn. He had to practice. He had to be precise. He had to know how to move, how to use his suit as an advantage rather than a disadvantage. He became more skilled, in other words, and by very precisely and more accurately applying his more limited strength, I think he became more powerful. Make sense? Now, now that I've said that, you probably see how this ties in because that is Steve Rogers in a nutshell. Even when you line him up later against the other team, we've got Stark in the suit, which would crush him. We've got Thor, which would crush him. <laughs> you know, we've got Hulk, which would crush him. Rogers just can't keep up. He is not the heavy. He is the exact opposite of the heavy when it comes to the makeup of any of these groups. And we see this during the montage as he's doing his training, where he can barely keep up with anyone else. And yet he consistently, for lack of a better way to put this, wins. My two favorite examples are the grenade, which I've already referenced like three times, and the flagpost. Come on, climb up the flagpost, go ahead and get it. Okay. Grab the flag, here you go. Because, like I said, it's not that Rogers is stupid, it's just that he doesn't sit back and ponder a problem. Instead, he's a lot more dynamic. He's... let me put it to you in another way. Rogers is a speedrunner whereas Stark is a tasser. And I really hope some of you get that. I'm not even going to explain that because that would take too long. I'm going to use another analogy, but I just wanted to use that analogy really quick. Because Rogers is the kind of person who, in an acting kind of career, he'd be great at improv. He'd just be like, yep, 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 I know what to do, I know everybody to do it. And he can dynamically think on the spot, but he's not thinking five steps ahead. He's thinking of his next step and maybe the step after that. Stark is the person who would be a good actor, the kind of person who has memorized the script and knows exactly where to be and how to do it and is very precise about it because he already planned it all out in advance. And thus we see that contrast. So again, I'm not comfortable calling Rogers stupid, only commenting that he is the kind of person where when, the, when some, a decision needs to be made right now, just no hesitation, no question, something has to be done now, he does. He thinks about it for a brief moment, he goes with his gut, and his gut in this case was not to run away with the others or to grab something to put it on. He saw a grenade and he put himself on it. Again, very self-sacrificing. If that had been a real grenade, the world would have been lesser for his loss, which is one of the great flaws of being self-sacrificing. So, um... <laughs> Uh, 
Then we have a really great human scene between uh, Erskine and Rogers. It's a great scene. I don't actually have much to add to it or talk about it. It's just a really nice scene. But there's two really important points I want to bring to your attention. The first is... The first country that was invaded by the Nazis was Germany. I love that quote. Real-life people have said that quote, and it's goddamn true. And it's something that, for a while there, we've kind of moved past this, I've noticed, in, in all my discussions with historical geeks or other people who are into history. We've kind of moved past that phase, but for a while there, people had a little bit of a hard time differentiating between Nazis and Germans, and it was causing some issues and causing some tension. But... The next thing I really like, and I really, really like this, is his statements about power. <sighs> he says that a strong man may not respect power. He, and I know he says may, too. It's not a guarantee, but you know, a strong man doesn't necessarily know the, or respect or understand the limits of his power. Strong man just uses his strength and may become accustomed to it or take it for granted. It is a weak man who understands the value of power because they're weak, because they don't have power, because they see the effects of power. Having that mentality, having that perspective of starting weak and becoming strong, arguably, and this is true on so many different levels, on a, on a governmental level, on a political level, on a military level, on an individual level, on an organizational level, and on a species level, starting weak to then understand and appreciate the value of strength before becoming strong can, big asterisk, can thus lead to a greater responsibility with that strength. And that's one of the things I really do like. I already mentioned this, but I, I just want to rehash this. I really like this part about Steve Rogers because it makes it so much easier to root for him. It makes it so much more human, and it makes him so much more awesome because he didn't start strong. He's kind of He kind of goes through the opposite journey that Stark did. I hate to keep comparing him to Stark, but the two have such wonderful parallels, it, it's kind of hard not to, you know? Stark started off with everything, lost it all, and then rediscovered himself. Captain started with nothing and then was given power, basically. He was given the serum. He was literally made superhuman. And now he has the ability to do something about it. I love that. I love that he has to earn it. I love that he has to work for it. I love that he has to suffer for it. There's this great scene. This is where I actually jotted this down here in my notes. There's this great scene, which is horrible, as he's screaming in pain, as well he should. It, I can't even imagine what it would feel like to have your body altered like that. That's, I don't think they even gave him that much of a sedative <laughs> or a, or a painkiller, because that might screw up the serum. So that probably hurt a lot. But he grit his teeth and he did it. Because he was never weak, not inside. And that's what I like about that. Also, really quick aside... It's interesting to see the difference in approach between Schmidt and Erskine. Because, I really hope I'm pronouncing that right. Because Schmidt says, I don't have time for safety, I've come too far. And it happens to work. Erskine is very cautious, has tons and tons of safeties and backups, and a whole team, and the support of the Senate, and they've got this, they're just doing all this, and they're doing all this, and they're doing all this, and also we got to do this. And at several times he wants to cancel it because he's worried it's going too far. It shows a lot the difference in mentality between the two scientists. Now, and of course Howard Stark is there. Of course he would be involved in this. <laughs> I mean, why wouldn't he be? Quick aside, why is the Hydra agent in that scene an idiot? I mean, I could dissect why his plan is kind of stupid, but the biggest and most obvious thing to point out is he waits until the serum has gone into effect, and then, having seen that it is successful, he decides to kill uh, Erskine, because, I mean, yeah, right? And then he decides to run off with the one sample of the serum he was able to get. Why not do that earlier or later, for that matter? When they're like, all right, well, you know, in, in the hubbub, when they're like, all right, now we got to replicate this and do this again. Nah, 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 nah. Psh, psh. Instead, he makes a big scene and basically makes it possible for him to be caught. 
Also, I wrote something down here, which I, I just really got to comment on, because once again, we see how Carter is competent. I wrote down, and I quote, Damn, she's a nice shot! I love it, too. She just lines it up, and then pulls the trigger and manages to get the driver. Really, really impressive. Holy crap. So, then we see what Captain America can do. We've already kind of seen what Steve Rogers can do. Now it's time to see what Captain America can do. He runs through there, you know, full speed, in just his shirt, and his, he has no equipment, he has no tools, he doesn't have the shield yet. And it's a great character revelatory scene. First of all, he's more than willing to get up and deal with this now. He's also more concerned with saving lives than hurting them. He does this twice. First, he interrupts Carter, who could have shot the guy, specifically to save her life, because her life was worth more than his, in his quick estimation. Granted, probably some hormones involved with that decision, too, but still true. And I could point to this because the next thing he does is he has to choose between chasing the guy and going after the kid. He immediately, and without hesitation, goes for the kid. And I love that the kid's like, it's okay, I can swim! Get him! Get him! Great, I, I love that. I love that. We were cheering in the audience when we saw that. Um... And, of course, he knows the territory. This is Brooklyn. <laughs> He's from here. So he met, even though the other guy has a car, he can outthink him, or at least outdynamic him. Again, like, like I said, his, his tendency to think around the situation. And, of course, now he has power. Because, as I've said many, 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 many times in my whole life, long before I ever started this show, power enables. That's what power really does. And so Stark, or Stark, excuse me, <laughs> getting confused now, Rogers is able to jump into the water, swim after a sub, punch a hole in the glass, and dra grab the guy out. Completely wouldn't be able to do that if not for the power that he has enabled him to do so. Uh, this is also a great contrast, because now we have seen what he is capable of, what he can do. We immediately cut to Schmidt, who hasn't really done a lot with the Tesseract on camera. This is basically the first time we really see what he and his weapons can do. This is when we see what Schmidt can do. We find out on camera, this is now codified, that he is not exactly a... F a f that he does not have fans back in Berlin. That he is not really well thought of by the Nazi regime. And they're basically here to shut him down. He's like, okay, look, I'm going to show you what I can do. It's very simple. Let me just power up this super gun and then shoot you with it. Because he has no problem killing Nazis. Oh my god, is he a good guy? No, 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 of course not. He's a super Nazi. <laughs> he, I mean, in the comics he really is. Um, but more to the point, he is completely capable of turning against the Nazi regime. And he has the power to do it. Thanks to the Tesseract. But more than that, and this is actually really important, this is, I think, the most important part of that scene. It's, a, it's one of the great lines in the film. Berlin is on this map. Of all the cities he plans to bomb into oblivion, one of them is Berlin. That, more than anything, says everything about, uh, about Schmidt's character, which is good because we don't have much other character there. That's basically the character point. I'm willing to do anything. This is a good time to bring up his motivations, though. What is Schmidt after? I'm dead serious. If any of you can give me a coherent and competent explanation for Schmidt's motivations, I am more than willing to listen to it and read your comments on it, because I got nothing. By the end of the film, his motivations are a lot more apparent. His uh, aggravation towards Rogers, his anger at his, his plans being ruined in the way that they are, his desire to have revenge. I mean, God's sakes, the fact that he pretty much adds New York to the list after his encounter with Rogers says a lot. But that's after he's already basically lost, and that's just his flailing revenge, vengeance, screw you mode. What was he after when he was on top of everything? Okay, I'm going to blow up all the cities in the world. All right, what then? Um, well, I have better weapons than everyone else. Except Wakanda, of course, but I'm going to pretend that they're not there. I actually imagine Hydra had, knew nothing about Wakanda, which is funny because canonically, if I'm not mistaken, the Wakandans did actually fight off Nazi Germany in the history of the MCU. I could be wrong about that. That's ancillary. What was his plan? <laughs> was this just... I mean, see, here's the thing. The best answer I've got is that he is legitimately insane. 
that whatever the serum did to him took his brilliance and instability and made it more. Just like he was talking about the serum. Good becomes great, bad becomes worse. And in this case, it, it's not on the, the moral scale, but instead his mind, which was already just a little bit unhinged for being a brilliant scientist, goes completely bonkers. Just goes, Bleh! I'm going to bomb the world. Why? Because I can. I can get away with this. You know, that's the best I got. Oh, excuse me. Now, oh my gosh. Then we have propaganda montage. I don't like this part of the film. More than once on rewatching this film, I've just fast forwarded through this. I actually caught myself doing it on, like, just out of habit as I was rewatching this. And I'm like, wait, wait, wait. No, no. I've actually got to watch everything. Hang on. Rewind. Okay. Let's watch this. Oh my God. I don't care for it at all. That being said, it is well done, if a bit long. It emphasizes the point that he is a dancing monkey. Hey, that sounds familiar. And that he's not particularly fond of his job, but perceives it as to be the only thing he really has available for him to do. And furthermore, it also makes an excellent contrast with how he is perceived back home. The propaganda machine, basically. And, of course, by all accounts, he is, in fact, helping to sell war bonds, and that is a legitimate contribution to the war effort. It really is. It could be argued that Captain America really did help World War II. Note how I'm saying this, by the way. That he did help the, the fight against the Nazi Germany regime because of the war bonds that he helped to sell. And that's funny, if you're paying attention, because that's kind of what happened in real life, too. Although the exact impact of the Captain America, which was designed as propaganda, for this, for this period in real life history, how much impact that had is debatable. But it's a nice callback. Moving forward... Then he talks to the troops who have no respect for him whatsoever and just want to see the girls and screw it, I'm out. Then he finds out that his, the 107th, that would be the one that Mr. Barnes was in, was taken. And I love the... How do I put this? I love the way that he kind of segues into... Uh, Colonel Phillips, and he's like, Colonel Phillips, and Phillips is like, look, I'm not willing to put up with this. But once again, he see it's not like he's without sympathy. He's a hard ass. You know, he's got to be that I'm a military in charge commander person. But he's still very human, and he flat out says, after he you know gives his first spiel, he's like, I, the name does sound familiar. I'm sorry. Now, uh, you know, and that sucks. Then Captain Rogers leaves. And then Carter turns to him, and he says, and I'm paraphrasing because I didn't catch the actual quote, if you have something to say, now is the perfect time to keep it to yourself. This is probably me reading too much into that, but I think this is Colonel Phillips pushing him into this. Now, later he acts upset about that. But at the same time, it really does feel like, at least in his frustration in the moment, Colonel Colonel Tommy Lee Jones, would be more than willing to push Rogers to try and actually do something about this situation. Either that or he's just continuing to his, his particular shtick. Take it how you wish. That's up to you guys. I just thought I'd posit that theory. But then I love the way that this n upcoming scene is built up to. And my quote I wrote down here is, because a weak man respects power. Because he understands what he is capable of doing. And he has no aspirations for world domination or being superior or charging out and killing all the Nazis. However, he has power. Power enables. And he wants to go save those people. I really, really like that. And then we have a whole scene with him rescuing the 107th. The Howling Commandos. Gotta admit, it was good to see them. Um, even though they basically just have a, a quick cameo thing, the Howling Commandos were a good introduction, or a good uh, inclusion into this film, I think. I also like how they did their work on figuring out the kind of people who actually would be in the boot campaign. Uh, probably my favorite tiny little tidbit is the gentleman who's like, well, we're taking everyone right now, and the guy pulls out his dog tags and is like, I'm from Fresno, which for those of you not aware is a city in California, which I only know about because I actually used to live there. 
<laughs> so, what they did was insane and dangerous, and in wartime could get them worse than court-martialed. And yet at the same time, I know this sounds horrible, but I have to agree with the mentality of doing it. Because that is Captain Rogers in a nutshell, isn't it? He doesn't do... He doesn't do the correct thing. This is how I like to phrase this. Captain Rogers is not interested in the correct thing. Captain Rogers is interested in doing the right thing. And with those men behind those lines, who were, as, it had as, as we find out, are literally being worked to death as chattel, that he is like, I need to go out there, and I need to save them. And, and he, 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 thankfully, he probably would have had to just run there otherwise, but thankfully, Carter, as I mentioned earlier, does actually have the access to those resources and, and the knowledge and the know-how to get Stark involved in order to fly out there and do this. And when it's like, you know, I'm going to jump now, again, right thing, not necessarily the correct thing. The correct thing can be debated after, afterwards by people in armchairs. But the right thing, oh, that's a little harder, isn't it? I love that. So he does his parachute jump. Um, he, ha he has a very take-charge attitude in, in every little bit of this scene, which I'll, I'll discuss in a minute. And we can see what he can really do when he really starts putting himself into it. This is our first real introduction to Captain America with the shield and the outfit and everything. What he can, this is a, I mentioned earlier that we saw what Captain America could do, but this is really the scene that establishes Captain America, the character, is when he infiltrates and saves the, the members of the 107th that he can. And they, of course, start confiscating Hydra weaponry, and they bring back a whole lot of Hydra weaponry. And where did all that weaponry end up, anyways? Because S.H.I.E.L.D. didn't really have a lot of that until Avengers. Anyways, <clears throat> so, uh, quick aside, notice that Zola was already experimenting on, on Mr. Barnes. I keep wanting to say Bucky. And as we know, and this is actually stated outright, this is why he survives the train scene later, and that they were already basically starting on turning him into the Winter Soldier, a poor man's version of the Captain America Super Serum. Which brings me to my next point. We see in that scene, you know, the scene that really shows Captain America, his two greatest strengths. First is his leadership capabilities. You know, unlike basically every other character we've seen thus far, Hulk and Banner, Stark and Thor, Cap naturally takes to leadership without, without even really meaning to. He just kind of says, we need to do this, this is what needs to be done, and people just kind of follow him. A very natural charisma to that. And that's important. I, I know he's the captain, but in my own military lingo, I would call him a lieutenant. Someone who doesn't know, who probably knows all of his men by name personally, but isn't, and, and, and is in the front lines shooting with them, but basically he's a step up from a basic sergeant, if, if that makes any sense. You know, we got the grunts, sergeant, actually we got grunts, corporal, sergeant, and then we've got all the, the squads in the sergeancy which report to a lieutenant. That's Cap, in my opinion. I know that sounds contradictory. He's always out there, too, on the front lines with his men, inspiring and giving orders on the fly. And we see his other great strength, special operations. The ability to do as a smaller squad or a smaller company what an army cannot, is physically incapable of doing by simple basic physics and reality. And that's very important because if you'll notice... I basically just outlined what S.H.I.E.L.D. would eventually become right there. Anywho, so then he brings back the Hydra Tech. He brings back the 107th. Bucky's like, yeah, it's here for Captain America. And there's applause. Great scene. It's a great win for them. And that leads us to the montage. Now, I've heard a lot of people complain about this montage, mainly because they didn't want it to be a montage, that they wanted to actually see Captain America beating the crap out of Hydra. I'm not sure what I think of that. It is, it is kind of weird, because this is already kind of a long film, and this is our second montage that we've had in the course of this film. But I'm okay with it, because it does at least serve a very important narrative point. Because Captain America and the 107th, the Howling Commandos, and what will become S.H.I.E.L.D., are not actually fighting Nazi Germany. Now, I think that's very important, because with the tech they have that they confiscated from that base, and with Cap, if they'd been fighting Nazi Germany, they would have won. 
I'm sorry. <laughs> and that would have severely and drastically caused some alterations to history, which would have to be accounted for for the stuff that's already been made in the present. And there's also always the, the problem and flaws with the possibility of this being considered disrespectful to pre-existing, you know, uh, veterans, people who have been around in World War II, people who actually lived through that uh, and did that. Now, whether that's true or not is up to you, but I do think that having him fight Hydra and not Germany, or Nazi Germany, was an important distinction. Because what it does is it basically maintains World War II intact, which is kind of a smart move from a writer's perspective, but it also does not diminish the importance of Cap or the 107th. They were still saving the world, they just didn't beat World War II, if, if you follow me. So I'm with it. So we're going to kind of zip forward a little bit. We're already in the final act here. We lose Bucky. Poor Bucky. He does live. Spoiler alert. And then they capture Dr. Zola. And he's the one I want to talk about most amongst the villains, such as they are in this film. There's a line that's my favorite line in the whole film. And it's a line that has stuck with me ever since I first saw this in the theaters. And that line is, the sanity of the plan is of no consequence because he can do it. Because in that we acknowledge, we see Zola is not deluded like Schmidt is. He acknowledges that what Schmidt is saying is insane. He just doesn't care because what he does care about is the reality. The, the capacity for pulling off these kind of things. You can actually do this. A, what I would usually refer to as a practical engineer, uh, engineering mentality. And, of course, he doesn't want to die. I have a theory, and I don't know if this is backed up in any of the comics or the shows, so please feel free to correct me if I'm horribly, horribly wrong. But I think Zola is the cause and source of Hydra 2.0. Because if you're paying attention throughout this film, and I haven't really brought it up much, Hydra 1.0 is just a cult that worships Schmidt, and that Schmidt has, has managed to get the Tesseract, and now they're going to go kill a bunch of people for no effective reason. You know, kill off Woodenhead to come back. That doesn't even, there's no significance to that statement. It doesn't mean anything with regards to Hydra. But Zola, well, he's pragmatic. He's not a cultist. He doesn't worship Schmidt. He thinks of himself, and he thinks of the long term. Throughout the entire work, he is always more pragmatic. Even when it involves giving what is effectively bad news to his boss, someone who has proven to kill people when taking bad news, he still does it because it's the truth, it's reality. Now, he is also a severe cynic from what we see later in, uh, I guess that would be Cap 2, um, you know, Winter Soldier. But I like to think that he saw this as a moment to redefine what Hydra is. Again, leading to Hydra 2.0. Okay, we tried it big. We tried it obvious. It didn't work. Now we're going to be quiet about it. Now we're going to slide into the background. Now we're going to become part of our greatest enemy. And the idea that Zola was there when S.H.I.E.L.D. was being founded, well, that speaks volumes, doesn't it? I also wonder, though, if that philosophy of people need to be controlled, which is basically the Hydra 2.0 philosophy in a nutshell, people need to be controlled and certain people need to not exist, was something that he had even back then, or if it was something that grew out of necessity. He doesn't show a lot of signs of what he, for lack of a better way to put this, believes in, in this movie, except for attending to reality. Now, in my mind, though, that leads naturally to believing in the need to control people because someone who purely believes in reality and pragmatism and nothing else would probably naturally lead to the idea that there must be a system in place to ensure that everything goes the way that it should. Just my take on it. As ever, love to hear your guys' thoughts. So, uh, Captain America's plan towards the end, is actually legit. I like it. Uh, it's a very simple plan, but it's one that works so well so many times because the whole point of the plan is to basically have two plans. The first plan is to charge in. Yeah! Basically, nice, big, obvious attempt at succeeding. Now, if it succeeds, great. You win. 
If it fails, well, you've made your attempt, and now the enemy thinks that they have won. And because the enemy thinks that they have won, their guard is lowered. That's when the second plan hits, the infiltration or the, the longer scheme or whatever you're going to go with it. I've seen this done in fiction so many times, and in real life, too. So that works out well. Um, I do have a question. They've got all these Hydra guns. Do they not appropriate any of these? I'm bringing this up because it's implied that that S.H.I.E.L.D. didn't really start experimenting with super high-tech stuff until, you know, basically before Avengers. That it wasn't until after Iron Man 1 that they started getting this tech upgrade, started working with the Tesseract, started working with the Hydra weapons, etc., etc. And yet, <laughs> we see in this film, Stark, Howard Stark, manages to find the Tesseract back in the 40s. Now... I personally also like to think, and again, I don't have, I'm sure this has been discussed somewhere, so please forgive me for wildly speculating, but I like to think that Howard Stark kind of kept the Tesseract to himself for most of his life. That he was the kind of person who couldn't quite trust other people with this. And it's heavily implied that's the source of where the whole arc reactor thing kind of came from. So, anywho. So Schmidt, you know, ah, jump plane, punch. It's, it's good stuff. I don't have anything to add. It's all good stuff. Um, Schmidt's motives at the end, of course, make much more sense than they did at the beginning, because now it's just about revenge. I do like his comment, I have seen the future. There are no flags. That is an interesting statement, given what it means politically, and especially given where the world has been shifting to throughout the MCU. It will be interesting to see how the planet Earth takes the Infinity War, because we might hit that point. I don't know where they're going to do it. Do with it. I don't know what they're going to do. We'll find out next week, won't we? Um, then he you know, grabs the Tesseract, Raiders of the Lost Ark reference. But what I love about it is when the Tesseract opens, and of course I didn't know this at the time because I didn't see Thor until after Avengers, the, the graphics in the, the space, the, uh, you know, through the rip that it creates in space, we see the same graphics and type of graphics as from Thor. The, the graphics of the, the galactic Yggdrasil, or Yggdrasil, depending on how you prefer that, um, which I like. It's good stuff. And then the Tesseract falls. Now, this is actually a weirdly important thing. For a while, I thought, why did the Tesseract burn its way through the ground? And then I actually, it just kind of occurred to me. It has to. If the Tesseract stayed on the plane, then they would have found Captain Rogers back in the 40s, because they can detect that damn cube at the bottom of the ocean. It, it puts off unique energy sources, which Howard Stark had studied, remember, and could probably find relatively easily, within a few years at least. So he would have found Cap earlier. It had to fall so that they find the cube and they never actually find him. Not until a great deal of time later. Bonus question. Do you think it was a privatized uh, operation on behalf of Stark Industries that Tony's probably not even aware of that kept going on Howard's orders that finally found Stark? Or do you think it was just S.H.I.E.L.D.? That S.H.I.E.L.D. has been looking for, or not Stark, I said Stark, God damn it, I did it again, that has been looking for Rogers. Do you think it is S.H.I.E.L.D. that specifically was still bothering to look for Rogers after all these years? I like to think the latter, especially since, as I said before, I really feel like S.H.I.E.L.D. had some legitimate loyalty to Howard Stark, and this would be another aspect of that. Just my opinion on it. Anyways, so... So that's basically the end of the film. There's some good stuff in the finale, you know. The way her she's just all smiles right up until he's, he points out the lie, and then her smile just goes away. And you could get this impression on her face, oh, God, I'm in deadly danger. Oh, crap. It's <laughs> very apparent. It's good stuff. And, of course, they have the wrong radio. Why do they do that? S.H.I.E.L.D., which is known for its competency and keeping on top of things, puts the wrong ball game on the radio. And don't tell me they did that on purpose. So he runs out. Had a date. And I have to point out once again that it is Fury who can handle the superhero. All his men, all his soldiers are just chasing after him and just causing him to freak out more. It is Fury who stands up and says, At ease, soldier. 
I also like to think, and we'll discuss this more in Avengers, that Fury has a particular respect for Rogers because Fury understands the value and competency of a soldier. Not a grunt. Well, I'm saying that wrong. The ideal of a military personnel. I'm going to say that very specifically. That he has respect for the kind of people who will do what is necessary who will put down their lives and accomplish what other people can't or won't in order to get things done. Just my opinion on that. So I think Fury treats him with, with a great deal of respect, and we'll do, this will be true in Avengers as well, because he legitimately respects him. I wouldn't be surprised if Fury grew up hearing some stories about what exactly was going on with, with Rogers back in World War II. Anyways, that is it. That's all I got. There's no real post credit scene here, because the post credit scene is literally just a scene from Avengers. Now, you may have noticed, I kind of skipped over the post credit scene from Thor. It's the one where Loki you know, is there, and they find the Tesseract, and Skelvig is involved. I kind of skipped over that, because I feel that's better discussed next week, when we go ahead and talk about Avengers, and when most of us who are in real life will be seeing Infinity War. I hope you've enjoyed this. I'll see you guys next time.